cryptids offer their own level of mystery, an aura of unknown that can span centuries and confound and frighten generations. But when that mystery extends beyond the creature in question and permeates the environment in which that cryptid resides, the legend grows exponentially. And that is where today's story takes place, in the one place on this planet most capable of concealing any variety of monstrous beasts. Welcome to Cryptid Caves, the part of the Strangelings podcast series that insists on conscripting an experienced Navy captain anytime we venture from shore. Before we get started, if you're finding yourself becoming one of us Strangelings and you haven't done this already, the next time the follow button shows you an animal species it discovered, spread rumors that they are hiding a horrible monster in their basement. This week is episode four. Mississippi, the sea serpent of Ship Island. U.S. Navy report file, Ship Island, serpent-like being witnessed breaching protected waters, specimen captured, dispatch amphibious research and detainment team. In what represents a slight format change over episode three, I, instead of Charlotte, We'll be starting off this week's story. Mostly because I think this story, the one I'm calling The Sea Serpent of Ship Island, is made uniquely exciting by the preponderance of evidence and the credibility of witnesses. Really, it's the ideal first encounter with a cryptid, the way we want to prove their existence. Because while in the world of cryptids and the paranormal in general, often, we're left with little evidence, little that offers more than a jumping-off point for speculation, a mere fleeting glance, a grainy photo here, a shadowy figure there. All the while, those of us who subscribe to this world, that believe these creatures to be lurking beyond the scope of our understanding, are left without the proof we need, the proof we can point to when discussing the unexplained and our fascination with it, with disbelievers. Although, on occasion... Like this occasion, a creature surfaces, pun intended, that blurs the line between myth and science, mystery and the logical pursuit of those who need to see to believe. Whether it's the credibility of the witnesses, either through credentials or reputation, or the nature of the sighting that can be called into question, or it's the lack of physical evidence that allows doubt to persist, we are often regulated to automatic disbelief, our stories viewed as fantasy, often in the pursuit of cryptids, as in the sightings that spur their respective legends. A single entity serves as the catalyst of that entry into the world of the mystery. Even if they are thought to be an individual within a larger population, the idea of a solitary nature is all too often synonymous with the creatures we know as cryptids. However, this isn't always the case, and on occasion, it's a group of unexplained creatures that will cross paths with humanity, 
And this is what creates the perfect storm of happenstance, the proof to be the exception that threatens to prove the rule, a case that shakes the very foundation of skeptics and excites the believers as it stands as the undeniable testament to the unexplained. Such is the case with Ship Island, Mississippi, and such is the case of a garrison of Union soldiers who bore witness and did battle with a group of eight sea serpents during the summer of 1864. Through it all, the fog of the Civil War, political unrest, the long stints away from their families, this group of hardened soldiers came away with the granddaddy of all fish stories. And thanks to Major H.P. Ritzius, we have a full description, even how it tasted, and a photo in the Smithsonian Museum. And without further ado, Charlotte. Ship Island itself gained importance after the War of 1812. Its natural deep-water harbour and its location along a shipping route made it a strategic location for the defence of New Orleans and the entire Gulf Coast. Because of this, it was named a United States military reservation in 1847. Then, in 1856, Congress authorised the construction of the fort. While construction was overseen by the Army Corps of Engineers, the workforce, which included carpenters, stonemasons, blacksmiths and stonecutters, was made up of nearly 100 civilians at any given time. By 1861, the outside wall of the fort stood between six and eight feet. However, in January of 1861, Mississippi seceded from the Union, becoming the second state to join the Confederacy. One of the first acts of the Civil War took place on Ship Island when a Mississippi militia seized control of the unfinished fort and the island itself. That militia soon abandoned the island and it sat deserted for nearly six months. Then, in early June, Confederate troops returned and mounted several cannons in an attempt to further fortify the position. After a month of holding the fort, the Confederate army entered into the only military engagement in which the fort would experience over the course of the war when the Union Navy's USS Massachusetts came within the range of the guns. The skirmish that followed didn't lead to significant injuries or loss of life, nor did it directly cause the Confederate army to vacate the fort. Although that would come a few months later when they abandoned the island in mid-September. Soon after, the Union army occupied the fort, and it would go on to be their staging area for the Union's successful capture of New Orleans the following spring and they would continue to operate from Ship Island, building it up with a variety of buildings, until the last Ordnance Sergeant was relieved of duty in 1903. This was the situation in which the garrison soldiers under the command of Major H.P. Ritzius lived. It was these circumstances that hardened them, and by extension gave them the fortitude and the credibility needed to push the sea serpents of the gulf solidly within that uncommon realm of cryptid on the cusp of breaching the veil of scepticism.
It was late in the evening, the southern summer night as hot as one would expect, despite it having been hours since sunset. Major H.P. Ritzius had taken up a position at the fort wall that faced the harbour. It was there that he first saw it, a mass of shadows moving just beneath the waves near the entrance to the harbour. Though almost giving the impression of being one behemoth of a creature, upon a closer, more focused look, Ritzius could make out distinct shadows, indicating a total of eight still very large creatures. Initially, he believed this sight to be a trick of the light, or his own sleep-deprived mind. However, regardless of how he tried to regain his own bearings, the shadows remained, proving that what he was seeing was real, even if he wasn't sure exactly what that was. What followed was a series of events that harkened back to literary epic tales of white whales and krakens. Ritzius proceeded to gather a few of his men and board a boat to investigate the creatures swimming beneath the harbour. As the boat approached the school of creatures, the first indication of their nature presented itself as one of them breached the surface, giving the men their first look at their opponent in this soon-to-be legendary tale of man versus beast. The creatures fled. The boat gave chase. Over the course of the next few hours, Ritzius and his men pursued these creatures, zeroing in on one. Eventually, over the course of the battle, the men unloaded nearly a dozen harpoons into one of the creatures, killing it, but not before the beast was able to drag them over ten miles out to sea. It was there that this struggle came to a close, and in the same moment, our tale turned from fish story to one of evidence that could leave even the most stubborn sceptic speechless. Because it was here that Ritzius and his men had the creature, and where, with the help of a passing revenue cutter, they could bring it to shore. After towing it back to the wharf, the creature was studied, and was measured to be 18 feet long, 15 feet wide, 6 feet in diameter and weighed to be 1,800 pounds. It had no teeth, but its head measured four feet across and three feet deep. A photo of the creature would eventually be sent to the Smithsonian Institution, where scientists would try, but ultimately fail to identify it. The on-site study of the captured creature would continue. Major Ritzius would give his account of the creature's appearance and its taste. Its meat has the consistency of unrefined cod liver oil. It's definitely unfit to eat. When my men and I were chasing these things, they looked black in the water, but they're brown, with a greenish back and a yellow underbelly. Generally speaking, this thing is a horrible, slimy creature, not something one would expect to see in these waters. Major Ritzius, there it is. Do you see that thing? It's huge. You can't miss something like that, soldier. Stay the course. We're hunting it down. What then, Major? We're not getting even one of those things on this boat. Not at that size. One problem at a time, soldier. We can't just leave them swimming around out here. Of course not, sir. Look, starboard side. 
The rest of the group is breaking away. This one's all alone. Bring us around. Prepare to fire the harpoons. Keep an eye on the rest of its group. Make sure they don't double back. Major, we're in range. Fire! That's a hit. Great shot. Reload. It ain't slowing down. Locked and loaded, sir. Waiting for a clear shot. As soon as it raises its ugly head, fire at will. It's trailing blood, but it's pulling us further out to sea. Keep firing. Give it all we've got. It can't go on like this forever. Neither can we, sir. If the beast doesn't pull us down, the waves will. Stiffen that upper lip, soldier. We're getting this monster. turning back. I guess they're getting more. Full speed. Bring us ahead of it. We need to drive it back toward the harbor. Ah, it looks like this fishing trip is about over, boys. Turn the gun on the rest of them. That should scare them off. Major, on the horizon. It's a cutter. Looks like the good lord provided. Send up the flare. They'll be able to tow this behemoth back to the fort. As I mentioned, this wasn't your typical drunk camper with a cell phone camera from 2005 type of sighting. These were men who were trained to be on high alert, fully aware of their surroundings because any change in them could mean a battle to the death was imminent. So when they believed something to be outside of the norm, devoid of explanation, I believed them. That was their home. The harbor was part of their everyday lives. Plus, they brought one back for study. I may not be willing to cook up a strange creature I pull up out of the ocean, but they did. And we'll say it was in the name of science. But even if they hadn't, say the creature had dove below the range of their harpoons and managed to escape, it's still a cryptid. Still an unexplained creature roaming waters where we, as a culture, didn't think it could be. There are no known sea snakes native to the Gulf of Mexico or the Atlantic Ocean as a whole for that matter. Certainly none that can reach the sizes these soldiers measured it to be. Neither can I buy the common skeptic scapegoat of this being a large school of small creatures that happen to move in unison. Those creatures, shrimp, small fish, etc., aren't going to engage in a battle. They aren't going to provide the single corporeal form that these men encountered. And it wouldn't explain the sightings that followed this initial view at this creature or the descriptions we were given by yet more reputable sources. Sources like Captain James P. Hare of the Trinity Shoal Lightship, and his recollection of his encounter with the beast in 1889, off the mouth of the Mississippi River. An encounter in which he and his men were able to kill another one of these creatures. Or an encounter such as the one in 1896, reported by the Ocala Evening Star, in which the crew of the boat Crescent City had a run-in with the sea serpent when it snagged a mullet they had been trolling off the coast of Carabelle, Florida. The newspaper reported that everyone was panic-stricken, 
The water began to foam at the end of the trawl line. The boat gave chase for several miles before eventually the crew was able to force the creature to the surface and shoot and kill it. After the Herculean effort to get it on board, the crew was able to measure the creature and obviously get a good look at it. They referred to it as eel-shaped and measured it to be 42 feet long and 72 inches in circumference. It had a spoonbill-shaped head and, quote, shark-like mouth with teeth set at 45-degree angles to the back of its mouth, and a long, forked tongue like what you'd expect from a snake. It had 8-inch fins at its tail, and was generally brown in color, with the same overall description as the creature from Ship Island seven years prior. Hare and his men armed themselves and set out in a small boat to intercept the beast. Once within range of the creature, Hare fired his rifle and the serpent began thrashing wildly. It fled back, mouth agape in a roar of anger, revealing its large, tusk-like teeth. The monster charged Hare's boat, seized the side of it and crushed it easily, according to Hare's recount, as easily as if it were made of glass. The relatively short but ferocious battle that ensued would finally come to an end after the Hare and his crew using a barrage of weapons from Hare's rifle, to harpoons, and even hatchets and axes, were able to kill the beast. As a symbol of riding themselves of the creature, Hare removed the head and brought it back to the ship. The crew ended up bringing the creature back to Carabelle, and it was examined by many people, but none were able to identify it. Or a third sighting and one that was perhaps the only sea serpent ever reported to the U.S. Navy. A sighting that occurred on November 23, 1901, about 120 miles southwest of South Pass in Plaquemines Parish, one of the primary entrances into the Mississippi River from the Gulf of Mexico. According to the Washington Times, the following report was filed with the U.S. Navy's Hydrographic Office, by a man named Henry Nelligan, who was the third officer on a steamer named Arata. We passed a large sea serpent that appeared to be 100 feet long. The head had a blunt, square nose and was ejecting water to a height of two or three feet from its nostrils. The animal, or fish, had three distinct sets of fins and a tail laying across, like a porpoise. There were a series of camel-like humps on its back that could be seen as it moved slowly east. So yes, the sightings of this creature have come from sources who are both level-headed and extremely familiar with the water. But it's the instances in which these creatures have been captured and studied that leave me wondering why the scientific community will leave these creatures in the realm of the unexplained. They've gotten multiple specimens, full access to study them, and can even say that they know what they are that they aren't good to eat. But when it comes to fully classifying the creature and giving us a real one to point to as proof of large creatures lurking in our world, they get to a point and stop. They leave it with the fact that they don't know what it is and let the evidence quite literally rot away. What did they bring in? We don't know, sir. It's some sort of sea snake, but it's massive. Initial measurements are 53 feet, but that was done on the boat. There's no way! I know. 
and I know what's in these waters. But even if the maritime measurements are off, just by looking at the thing you can tell, it is definitely a predator. And like I said, I know these waters well enough to know there isn't much that can threaten something the size of this thing. There aren't even sea snakes of any size native to this part of the world. If we do find one, it's not going to be an apex predator. I've never seen anything like it. I can't even get a base family tie. Anything beyond calling it a part of the animal kingdom is a guess at best. Well, let's see this mythical beast. Oh my god. We're going to have to call in someone for this. Is Thor available? I am honestly torn about this one. Yes, the common skeptic write-off is the tired argument of mistaken identity. But this time, it has a new flair. As I've mentioned now and in every episode to this point, the idea that someone who is familiar with a given environment is far less likely to mistake a common inhabitant of said environment for a cryptid. And, therefore, the frequency in which I come across mistaken identity used as a way to discount such sightings can be maddening. However, the ocean is a much different story. It's well established how little we know how little we've explored, and the idea of what can be down there is really anyone's guess. In the case of this cryptid, the common thought is that they are oarfish, a species of elongated deep-sea fish that share a significant amount of descriptors with the sea serpents of Ship Island. They are commonly found to be roughly 20 feet long, with unconfirmed reports of individuals reaching nearly 60 feet, they possess a near dragon-like head with large dorsal fins that fray out in a way commonly associated with that mystic mythical lizard. And they lack a swim bladder, so they are likely prone to using a unique tail undulation to maintain their positions in the water column. In terms of why I'm more willing to accept mistaken identity in this case, beyond just the mystery of the ocean serving to replace the mystery of the creatures itself, it's the nature of these creatures and how we know about them. They weren't first described until 1772, less than 100 years before the majority of the sightings I've talked about here. And because they are naturally reclusive creatures native to the deep sea, they're rare for us to sight them even today. So it's very plausible that these seamen wouldn't be familiar with the species or even remotely aware of it. And that could hold true with the scientists of the day as well even if I am still perplexed by the seeming lack of the scientific method employed when they studied these specimens. But not everything fits nicely into this oarfish box. First, oarfish are largely solitary creatures, meaning that that first sighting, the one that actually happened at Ship Island, Mississippi, included eight individuals, and that wouldn't track. Neither would the overall aggressive nature that seems to hold true across all accounts. Orfish tend to be less so towards humans. The varying descriptions of this creature's toothed and not toothed mouth lends them to the creature's shark-like mouth being up for debate, and largely, I dismiss that, because that is, if you are in the midst of a battle, that is something that you may mistake in the heat of the moment, 
but the oarfish doesn't possess the ability to destroy a boat. And the fact that it would be hard for a ship captain to mistake whether or not his boat was wrecked pushes this explanation a little closer to disbelief. He's going to know it. If it was wrecked, his boat was wrecked, and an oarfish isn't going to be able to do that. Not to mention the natural habitat of the oarfish is at a depth of over 3,000 feet. Yes, they are occasionally seen at the surface, but that's usually due to illness or injury, which also wouldn't lend itself to the tales of this cryptid. But even if you overlook all of that, why they would end up in the Mississippi River, which has a max depth of only 200 feet, is beyond me. Water pressure alone would tell them they're not in the right spot. And as a final point, as a counter-argument to the oarfish being the explanation, is the mullet. The mullet isn't in the diet of the oarfish. Mostly, it feeds on krill. So that epic showdown over the trolling line wouldn't make sense if it were an oarfish. I do like the idea of being able to point to a newly discovered animal. Well, relatively newly discovered animal. That was once a cryptid. But whether or not this is the case of that remains up for debate. While in our time, a time when technology often outpaces our ability to utilize it, the world of the 18th, 19th, and even the early 20th centuries was very different. It was, in many ways, a slower and more simple time. Stories were told via word of mouth. Great tales often spun from some small piece of supposed evidence with no searchable database for instant corroboration or fact-checking. And oftentimes, in this world that favoured things like travelling carnivals, freak shows and saloons as entertainment, it would be the ambitious who would turn these stories into the unimaginable in the pursuit of a buck. That isn't to say the practice is in any way underhanded. After all, we all are still willing to suspend disbelief in the name of entertainment, to chase the high of emotional manipulation at the hands of something outside of our norm, something exhilarating. That's the basis of the entire industry and why we listen to podcasts. But the understanding of how frequently this was the case and how easily stories could be blown out of proportion and remained unchecked does add a layer of complexity to the honest pursuit of the cryptids, who may just be a product of this situation, or who may be all too real and still hiding behind a layer of extra sensationalism. The chase of monetary gain is what drove things like the notorious Last Chance Saloon, and its keeper George Rains to keep a museum at the back of his establishment stocked with oddities brought in by sailors who stopped in for a drink. Whether the story they told was genuine or simply told for its value in whiskey is the basis of the issue, or even the simple desire to want to believe something is real, a desire we all know all too well, can spin those same yarns, even if only for a lack of understanding. In the early times, newspapers and town officials weren't above catching that sensational bug, such is the case Brenham Weekly Banner, who would publish a story in 1878 of one Dr. Wilson who had discovered the petrified head and jaws of a sea serpent that he extrapolated would have a body 40 feet long. 
Yet, we now know that area as a hotbed for fossils of identifiable marine dinosaurs. And what he found, years before paleontology would give us an understanding of prehistoric Earth, was likely an example of that, rather than proof of a beast that could threaten a family's day at the creek. Even well-known publications weren't adverse to adding to the fever of these stories. The New York Times excited readers in 1908 with the headline of a 200-foot sea serpent seen at three bells in the Gulf of Mexico. No, there is no easy how to guide on hunting cryptids, on ascertaining truth from either exaggeration or straight-up lie. So even in the case of monstrous creatures that patrol the depths of the oceans of the world, even when we can classify a multitude of creatures who fit that very description, we must approach each story with an open mind, a lens of the time to the best of our ability, and yes, even a small bit of scepticism, calling into question all that seems out of place and willing to accept logically constructed explanations when no evidence gives cause to hesitate, and the ability to identify the difference. All done in the hopes of breaking the veil of myth and shining a spotlight on the things that are, as of yet, still unknown. And that is the thought I wish to leave with you. The thought that we may never prove that what was cited by Ritzius and his men was indeed a monster of myth, or prove the existence of any of the creatures we call cryptids. But the chance to chase them, hunt down answers, is a journey that doesn't necessarily need a destination. That'll do it for Cryptic Caves Episode 4, Mississippi, the Sea Serpent of Ship Island. If you find yourself wanting more from us here at the Strangeling Studios, you can find us on Instagram at strangelings underscore podcast. Or follow the link in the episode description to join our Discord server and get heard by all of us strangelings. And don't forget about our Race to 100 for 100 Cryptic Caves giveaway. All you need to do for your chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card is follow us here on Spotify and then follow the links to join our socials. So as long as you are one of the first 100 people to do that, you have a chance to win. Thanks so much for listening. Provided my team aren't pulled out to a watery grave between now and then, join us next week for Episode 5, New Jersey. Thanks for listening.